And I've been in this passage for almost maybe a couple months, reading, studying, reviewing different smart people and what they said about this passage. But I think the best piece of advice I got this morning from my daughter before I left, I think she said, don't forget to tell them what it really means. So I'll do my best this morning to try to tell you what it really means. I think that's the job of anybody that's sharing God's word. Is that I'll do my best this morning to tell you what it really means. Um, but before we get into the passage, let me just begin with a word of prayer. Lord, I really want to do a good job this morning of sharing what your word says and expositing this passage in a way that honors and glorifies you. Lord, help me not to do anything more or less than that. Uh, Lord, maybe we'll be changed from your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in order to understand the passage that we're about to read, I want us to think through the, the context of James chapter 1 a little bit. So imagine, just for a second, imagine that the laws of our state and our city have changed. I mean, Huntington, we have a church everywhere. We have churches on every corner almost, it seems. But imagine that's all changed. Imagine something really terrible happened, and one of the members of our church was martyred for their faith. And after that, we were all dispersed throughout the state. Let's show a picture of the state. You know, Epperleys, you guys are in Charleston. You know, Adkins, you guys are somewhere up in Beckley. A few unfortunate folks were exiled up to Morgantown. Uh, you know, we've all been split up. We're under persecution. We can't really meet the way in a building that we did before, but few folks that live in the same city would meet together in homes. Um, now imagine getting a letter from our, from our old pastor, Pastor Adam. He, he, he somehow is able to distribute a letter to each of us. And these are trying times. You know, we once had this community where we're together and now we're all over the place. And the letter comes to us like a glass of cold water on a really hot day. I mean, such an encouragement all the trials, and we're so encouraged because Pastor Adam is encouraging us that we can stand strong amidst the trials that we're facing. Let's look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is exactly what was going on at the time. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. That's, that's Stephen, who in, in Acts chapter 7 we saw was martyred. And there arose on that, great day, or on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So James, as we know, was an elder at the church of Jerusalem. Some of the people that he's writing to were probably his members or congregants. And so he's, he's writing to them as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, in a way to just encourage them to live out the faith they proclaim. And thankfully, in, in the sovereignty of God, what he wrote to them is so applicable to where we're at today, even though our circumstance is different. What he, how he encouraged them is just so applicable. So let's, let's read the passage this morning and see what applications we can make. So James 1, 19 to 27. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I broke it down into seven things that, that James is telling the, uh, the church, the diaspora, the dispersed. He says that Christians are quick to hear, slow to speak, they have a bridled tongue. He says that in a couple different verses. That they're slow to anger, that they avoid evil and live above reproach, unstained, that they receive the word, but not only do they receive the word, but true Christians are those who are also obedient to the word, doers of the word. And then finally in verse 27, he says that Christians are those who care for orphans and widows. So now I broke that down further into four main things that I thought summarized the passage. Number one, true Christians communicate in a Christ-like manner. The way we speak, the way we respond in anger or not, we communicate in a Christ-like manner. True Christians live holy and pure lives in an evil world. True Christians hear and act on God's commands. And finally, true Christians demonstrate compassion to those who are down and out in society. He mentions especially in this passage, orphans and widows. So let's look at the first of those. True Christians communicate in a Christ-like manner. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now the word quick in the Greek is the word tachos, and the word slow is the word bradus, and that's where we get the medical terms tachycardia and bradycardia, if you've ever heard those before. Tachycardia is a fast heart rate, like bum 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 bum. Bradycardia is a slow heart rate, bum 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 bum. Almost you're waiting for that heart to beat again. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then in verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's really powerful. James is telling us something really, really important here, an important truth. The tongue is a test of true religion. Now, when I first told Kate that I was going to be speaking about this particular passage, I got, I got this look like, you're talking about what? Because this passage, slow to speak, doesn't really describe me very well. Um, I'm one who oftentimes is very quick to speak, especially when I'm tired or excited about something. When we got engaged, I was really, really excited. And it was about three or four weeks before our wedding. And we had this huge list of people that we had invited to our wedding. Too many people, actually. More than the church could hold. And so there was a little bit of anxiety about that. But I knew a lot of people. I was, you know, I was 31 when I got married. So I felt like I knew a lot of people and had been a part of some churches. And so I wanted you know, to 
bring him out. He has a big day. And around that time, three or four weeks before the wedding, um, Kate had come home from Uganda. Um, I saw a friend at Starbucks, and I thought, I just started telling her about the wedding. I hadn't seen this friend for, I don't know, quite some time. Telling her about the wedding, I'm getting married, and you should come, you know? I would like to invite you also. So I got her address, and I didn't really take the time to be slow to speak, a little quick to speak there. I hadn't really thought about the fact that you know, we had already you know, invited a lot of folks. And so I went back and told Kate, and she was you know, not, not really pleased with what I had done. Um, she mentioned, you've know, got this big list of people, and now you've you know, invited another person. And you know, there was a reason this person actually wasn't invited the first time around. I hadn't really you know, seen them, interacted with them. They weren't really that close of a friend, and I just got excited. So I knew what I needed to do, okay? So I contacted my friend, and I said, hey, listen, I'm so sorry. Okay, I have, I have made a mistake. I over-invited. I'm going to have to, you know, just pull that one back. I, yeah. And so I went back to Kate thinking that I have, I have done something very good. You know, I have, I'm starting our marriage right. Uh, I have taking care of this problem already, fixed it, and Kate was not pleased. Um, she informed me that apparently I had violated some kind of a rule of invitations for weddings, and I didn't, didn't quite know that, you know, I, you know, it was a little awkward, so I knew what I needed to do, right? I went back and contacted my friend again and said, hey, you know, we actually really do want to invite you to the wedding. Sorry about all that other stuff before, but we want you to come and, um, you know, she didn't come to the wedding. <laughs> it's still a little awkward, actually, six years later, um, but she didn't come. Even though she had been invited twice to the wedding, she didn't come. Right. My failure to be slow in speech not the only time uh, it has gotten me in, in a lot of, of trouble. But I do find it encouraging that 2,000 years ago, James was telling Christians the same thing, that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Apparently, this has been a challenge for Christians for many centuries. In our day, we have some new challenges. Social media, you know, it's, we have many different websites. This doesn't even give it justice. We've got WhatsApp and Instagram, and Twitter, Facebook, WeChat. I don't even know what that is, but there's, I was looking it up. There's a lot of ways that you can just, something comes to your mind, right there. It's out there, done. Regretting sometimes because we can be very quick to speak. And then we're validated by, oh, maybe somebody liked it. And so it, it almost gives us some like feedback that, being quick to speak actually was the right thing to do. But the Proverbs and James teach us something a little different. Let's look at Proverbs 17. It says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So the Bible actually commands those who don't talk. 
those who are able to remain silent. Let me ask you something. When was the last time you heard somebody make that as a descriptor of Christians? Those Christians, man, they are really, really good listeners. And I hope so. I don't think people say that about me very much. Um, listen to these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in the time of Nazi Germany, a German pastor. He wrote a book called Life Together, and this is a quote. The first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is listening, is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends us his ear. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking where they should be listening. We should listen with the ears of God that we may speak the word of God. That's a powerful quote, you know, from some 80, 70, 80 years ago. I remember reading another quote in a book that said, never pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. Well, I wish I, wish I could go back and, and take back a lot of things I've said. So James is teaching us the same thing in verse 26 when he says, basically he says, if you think you're a godly person but aren't able to keep your mouth shut, our religion is, is worthless. A bridle is like the headgear on a horse. And the picture is that of believers who are able to exercise some self-control about what they say and how they respond, how quickly they respond. He, he's saying, Christians, we've got to be ready to listen. We have to be less jumpy to respond and, and certainly not easily frustrated or angered. Because we are not the ones who, by our quick thinking and quick tempers, are able to change people's hearts. We know that, right? We could win an argument, but really we know that, man, we lost that one because we may have coerced somebody to do something with a, an angry response or a forceful response, but really at the end of the day we leave that feeling, oh, nothing lasting, nothing fruitful, nothing good really came out of that. Sometimes we, you know, I like to think about, oh, Jesus got angry, right? He, he turned over the tables of the temple, but I forget, that was Jesus, and that was not... He's not human. He's God. Most of the time when the Bible talks about our anger, it's in a sense that it's not a good thing. Look at John uh, chapter 18. Um, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's ear, uh, and a servant, and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter was angry, People were coming to arrest his master. He responded the way he thought was right. He got angry and, and cut off this man's ear, but Jesus said, no, you know what? That's not, that's not going to accomplish my purpose in that situation. And most of the time, our anger doesn't either. So we've first seen that, that true Christians, we've got to communicate in a Christ-like manner. The second thing he says, true Christians live holy and pure lives in an evil world. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, literally the word that, that God has implanted in our hearts when we became a Christian, which is able to save your souls. 
religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We'll come back to that part. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. So there's kind of two ideas here. One is that we're putting off, we're, we're literally putting away things, and we're seeking to be unstained, that those things never stained us in the first place. Christians at this time were not living in easy times. It was not an easy place to live. James was one of the first New Testament books written in the 40s. There, Stephen had just been martyred. Rome was a polytheistic, barbaric society. Promiscuity, perverted practices were really the norm in this place. Christians were targeted people. They didn't seek to really fit in. And James is exhorting them to live holy and pure lives. I fear that the tendency sometimes of Christians in our culture is that there's an idea of we want to be accepted. Um, I know that's my tendency. I, I want to be liked or appreciated. And that sometimes we can be almost Christian like chameleons. On Sunday, I could come to you and speak this to you. I could meet with Pastor Adam. I could share truths together, but then on Monday when my co-workers are saying something that I know that doesn't line up with Scripture, I'm a lot more hesitant to be bold, to be courageous. David Platt writes in his exposition on, on this book, he said, are we going to live, are we going to define religion on our terms and settle for a Christianity that appeals to our lifestyles, one that's easy, one that doesn't involve persecution, one that doesn't involve holiness, or are we going to submit to God's terms? for what faith, religion, and Christianity look like in our lives, in our families, in our churches? Are we going to live as Christian chameleons, or are we going to live in a way that does naturally put us in conflict and tension with an ungodly world? That Greek word, put away, is apothemonoi, which means to remove something as you would remove clothing. So we're taking it off. But then in verse 27, he talks about trying to be unstained. So I want to show you a picture of an Indian festival. These are not my children. I got these off a Google image, all right, citing it. So this is a festival in India. It's celebrated here. Some of you guys may have seen it, actually. I think they probably do it on, on campus called Holi. Um, it's a festival where, uh, it's a festival of colors where people are squirted with water guns and hit with water balloons, and they, all, they get all colorful, as you can see. Can you imagine trying to walk through this with a, with a white shirt on and try to be unstained? It would be very, very difficult. But in our culture, uh, we are living in, in a world that is trying to constantly paint us with their colors. It's, it's all over the place in ways that we don't even really recognize or notice, whether it's music or television shows or commercials. Um, we are constantly being bombarded by, by a world, by a worldview that opposes our faith, okay? So to be a Christian in our society, just as in James' day, means that we must daily and frequently remove the wrong patterns of thinking and, and living that seep into our lives, and we must try to live close enough to the world to love them, and yet separated enough to try to be unstained. Now, that's not an easy balance. We all know that. Um, look at 1 John chapter 2. 
we get this concept of we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Christians, God has placed us in a world that's much the same, sinful, ungodly world that we live in. He is teaching us through this passage that we must be vigilant and determined to live as those who are set apart, as those who are holy. And as we do this, there will be, and, and really should be, opposition. Look at John chapter 15. If there's, if there's not this opposition, perhaps something isn't, isn't really right with the way we're living. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now I find this a very convicting passage. Because all my life I've heard people say about me, well, you're a nice, you're a nice person. You are such a nice person. We really like, everybody likes you. And then I realize as I read a passage like this, maybe it's because from all my life, I've shied away from sharing the hard truths of Scripture with people. And as a result, I haven't stirred the pot very much. Not on purpose to try to make people upset, but maybe I haven't said the things that I could have said or stood where I could have stood. Christians, we have to live our lives for Christ in such a way that we practice holiness and aren't afraid to be disliked for Christ. Well, let's move on to the third thing. First thing we talked about, we communicate in a Christ-like manner. Second, we, we are exhorted to live holy and pure lives, unstained and still putting away things around us that are evil. The third is, true Christians hear and obey God's Word. It says in verse 21, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. But it doesn't stop there. We're not just to receive it, not just to take it in. But we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is telling believers that it is possible to deceive ourselves if all we're doing is taking in God's word, but we're not acting on it. Our works do demonstrate that we are true Christians. You know, sometimes I can come to the Bible, not sometimes, oftentimes, I can come to the Bible in the morning and I could read a good verse, but I could walk away from it completely unchanged. So often, I pick up my Bible, I'll read something, I'll even write it in, something about it in my journal, think about it for a while, and then I, I live a day that I totally live as if God was forgotten, abandoned, and ignored. And, and I want to you know, encourage us because that whole notion sounds pretty preposterous to James, but I fear that sometimes we operate that way. Do we accept invitations from God's Word when we're studying God's Word to be transformed and changed? Or do we read a verse, 
write it down, and move on with our day. See, you and I, we can be, we can be Bible scholars and yet still live lives that reek of hypocrisy if we're not acting on God's Word and what it says. You know, we, we can read Philippians 4, 6 and says, don't worry about anything, and then 10 minutes later, I'm worried that the Raptors won't win the NBA Finals. You know, that's, it's, so, it's so easy for us, for me, to hear God's Word and yet not act on it. We, we would never live our secular lives in that way. Okay, look at verse 23 and 24 again. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his face, at his, at his natural face in a mirror. That looking intently is he's saying with penetrating absorption. You know, Tyler, if you remember not long ago, the day you got married and you looked in the mirror that morning, you were looking because you wanted to make sure that you looked your best for your bride that day. You wouldn't have just looked and said, man, my hair's all messed up. I got spinach in my teeth from the night before. I'm not worried about it. It's all going to be okay. You would look and you would do something about it. In the same way, God's Word is a, is a mirror for our lives to show us what's wrong and where we need to change. You know, Jordan, when you started working at the pharmacy at Marshall, you probably got some kind of a job description. You were expected to you know, come to work. You are expected to look over all these medications, making sure everything was right, correcting all the things that, that, that are mistakes that we make. You wouldn't just get your job description and kind of take a look at it. And, Man, that looks, that looks pretty, pretty good. That looks pretty tough. And then just kind of toss it to the side, kick up your feet and start playing Xbox at work. I think you'd probably get fired. In the same way, why is it so easy to look at God's Word, what it says, and just kind of read it and think, man, those are good thoughts. I'm going to even write that thought down. And then we move about my day and not do it. Thankfully, God doesn't fire us. He's gracious to us. He tells us over and over again. I've read this passage now so many times, and yet I'm still struggling to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Thankfully, um, God has so, got so merciful to us. Let me challenge you with one other thought on this part. It's easy for me to say, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to obey you in this, and yet to not really be obedient. Okay? I wouldn't be satisfied if my children at the end of the day said, Dad, I am willing to clean my room, but then didn't do it. Right? So, so willingness is important. We have to be surrendered to God. We have to be willing. But it is not the end all. James is taking this a step farther. We need to be willing, and yet we need to act on what God's telling us to do. And not just talk about it. Okay. The last point. We've looked at, we need to read God's Word and we've got to do it. We need to communicate in a Christ-like manner. We need to live lives that are holy and pure in an evil world. The last thought to share with you is verse 27. True Christians are demonstrating compassion towards orphans and widows. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. That's a big statement. Let me just say before we even look at what he says, that is a huge statement. He is saying a religion that pleases God is... He could have said anything here. 
come to church, give your money away. He says this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We looked at that second part already. Let's focus on the first now. Christians, this is not an option. This is an obligation. James could have said anything, but he commands us, he exhorts us to care for orphans and widows. These widows probably represent true widows in 1 Timothy 5 who did not have anyone else to care for them. And, and orphans were those who were left without a parent. The heart of God is for our faith to be demonstrated not by more religious activity or involvement, but instead by outward actions of love to those who are in greatest need. This is the heart of the Father. Perhaps this is why David was called a man after God's own heart. We know the things that David did that were very bad, but let's look at this story from 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is David's heart. And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Jonathan and Saul had both died in battle. So perhaps Mephibosheth was an orphan. He didn't have anybody else. And David loved him. What a picture of the gospel. David makes room for an orphan at his table. Fathers, on your special day, may I ask you, is there room at your table for one more? Is there room at your table for an orphan or a foster child? The opportunities are available. There are over 500,000 foster children in the United States. And in the world, there are about 153 million orphans. That's more than the entire population of Russia. In His mercy, God made room at His table for us. Can we make room at our table for one more? To summarize this, James presents a crucial list of characteristics for us who want to live authentic and and godly lives in an evil world. He says true Christians are communicating in a Christ-like manner. True Christians live holy and pure lives in an evil world. And true Christians hear and obey God's word. And true Christians demonstrate compassion. 
towards orphans and widows, to those who are down and out in society. If this list appears daunting or unattainable, join the club, okay? It is. And through James' admonitions, we see ourselves in need of a Savior. We don't want to just go out and double down on our efforts now to change ourselves and, and for me to stop talking so much. No, I need to double down on my dependency to ask God, God, please change me and help me to live the way that your word exhorts me to. And James is not teaching a legalistic approach. He is not teaching that we need to do these things so that God will accept us. He is teaching that because we have been accepted, we're to do these things. Just like Paul in Philippians 1 encourages the church to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, so James is encouraging us to live authentic Christian lives in an evil world. So today, I'll leave you with this. Let's beg God for a heart that helps us love Him and love others well. Let's engage our friends in conversation, and instead of speaking, let's listen and ask questions. Let's put away the things that surround us that are pulling our hearts away from God so that we can live holy and pure lives. Let's read God's Word intently, and when we come upon a command of Scripture, let's submit ourselves to doing those things and obeying. And lastly, let's look around uh, and see those who are desperately in need for help, orphans and widows and others, and look for ways that we can obey this passage. Men, on your day, my final charge is to you. Let's beg God to change our hearts because the world needs men who will choose Christ and who will choose their families above our sports and our video games. I want to be that kind of man, that kind of a father. Will you choose that with me today? We can't do it alone. We need each other. And most of all, we need Christ. I'll invite the band up. And I'll lead us uh, in a closing word of prayer. Lord God, we are desperately in need of you to help us to live out this passage. Help us truly today to hear your word, but to do it and to practice obedience, Lord. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the men and women here that love you, that encourage me, that exhort me. Help us to grow closer to one another. And Lord, thank you for fathers. Lord, help us to seriously take our charge that you've given us and to be godly men who lead our families according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.